Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Brian Watt. I'm the morning news anchor for KQED Radio. So now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest, Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and author of The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. Stewart has worked as a Republican strategist and media consultant for many state, national, international leaders, including President George W. Bush, Senators Bob Dole, Chuck Grassley, Dick Luger, and Mitt Romney. And in his new book, The Conspiracy to End America, Stewart puts it squarely. Today's Republican Party is not a normal political party in the American tradition. It has become an autocratic movement masquerading as a political party. And he asks an important question. Will 2024 be America's last free and fair election? Please welcome Stuart Stevens. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I think I heard you say that your last book, It Was All a Lie, you wrote it kind of as a way of understanding what was happening yep. to the Republican Party when Trump came out on top of it. What are you trying to understand with this book? The well, you know, to go back, in 2016, there were a lot of people who were wrong about Donald Trump. It's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. You know, the idea that the Republican Party that I had worked in was going to nominate somebody that talked in public about having sex with his daughter, I mean, that just was absurd, right? That wasn't going to happen. And then I couldn't imagine him winning. And when he did, I had a lot of friends in the party that, you know, would grumble and would say, well, you know, Trump hijacked the party. I never got this. I mean, you know, the hijacker is never popular on the plane, you know, it's not like, I'm really glad this guy hijacked the plane. <laughs> right. And Donald Trump is really popular. So in that kind of old high school English teacher way that if you can't write it, you don't understand it, I really started to ask myself, how did I miss this? What did I not know? So I started reading a lot and writing, and that, I really didn't intend to write a book, but that's what became, it was all a lie. And even with that deep look at the Republican Party, and a lot of it, was about my role in the Republican Party and why I didn't see this. You know, there's kind of a trope of books people write about Washington, like, if only they had listened to me. I couldn't write that book because they did listen to me. Hmm. You're the person they were listening to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think about that a lot. So I ended up working with the Lincoln Project in 2020. And, you know, I opened the book with this. About this time in the election... I had worked a lot in these states that were critical to the race, Pennsylvania, like we were talking about earlier, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona. And it became clear to me that Trump was going to lose. And, you know, I had this kind of moment where I felt free, like Trump's going to lose and I can quit doing this. And as you asked me then, if Trump lost by seven and a half million votes north of 300 electoral, would the Republican Party acknowledge it? It sounds incredibly naive, but I would have laughed. I would say, well, you, I mean, you don't walk out of the Super Bowl and debate the score. Right. You know what the score is. You can right. say, well, I'm really sorry this team lost. You can say the ref cheated. You can say this, but you can't debate the score. Um, and yet it happened. 
then January 7th. <laughs> and what, what really became apparent to me is, as I started reading a lot about how democracies fall into autocracy. And, you know, it's not an obscure subject. There's a lot of brilliant work on it. You know, Ruth Ben-Ghia, Jean Mercer. All of it. And it became apparent that there always seemed to be these five elements that were present when a democracy falls into autocracy. Mm. And what struck me was that we talk about these five a lot, but we don't talk about how they're connected. And we tend to view them individually mm. and not how they work together directly or how they work sort of synergistically together. Right. And that's what led me to write this book. Hmm. Let's talk about the five yeah. elements. Um, I want to try to get some into each of them during this discussion, but quickly. Yeah, give the, me like yeah the five were um, support of a major party, which obviously, you know, the Republican Party is Trump now. Financiers, they have you know, money out the wazoo, you know, Peter Thiel in this neighborhood is one example. Yeah. Propagandist, which we all know Fox. In a way, Fox has almost sort of become the mainstream of the far right now. There's a, a lot more. There's a vast, you know, world of this, this, this media out there. Um, they need shock troops, which we saw on January 7th. They're, they're out there a lot. You know, in a country with 400 million guns, there's a lot of them. And... You need a legal structure to justify what you're doing so that if North Carolina or Georgia passes a law that the state legislature can overturn the popular vote, when they overturn it, it'll be perfectly legal. And those, those are the five. They work together in different ways. They're more connected than we tend to look at at face value. Hmm. So the idea is that we often focus on one of these elements yeah. or another, but we don't necessarily realize that it's that they are very connected and that they kind of work together yeah you know i think part of the whole problem we have is how do we talk about this because it's sort of like a serious pandemic whatever you say at the beginning is going to sound alarmist right but in the end is going to prove to be inadequate and how do you talk about this and i think that's something that uh journalists have struggled with tremendously i think that's one of the interesting things about this moment you know as a journalist, you know, in a Western democracy, you know, the, it has been considered the greatest good for journalism to be objective. That was, that was, that was the gold standard. And yet, how do you tell both sides of a lie? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a lot of what our, our friends in journalism have, have struggled with. And it's another example of how much of our democracy, civil society, more than we probably ever realized, is based upon good faith. So objectivity works great if you have both sides that have some sense of good faith. Right. I mean, you know, there'll always be people that lie, on, you know, the government lies, but that ultimately there could be some agreed-upon truths which journalism could be uh, uh, play an important role at determining, and that would help guide a discussion. But when you have one side that doesn't care anything about the truth, that is, object, that is actively fighting the truth, it becomes a very different world. And I think that journalism is still struggling, you know, it's better than I, with how to, how to approach that world. Absolutely. No, I, I will just say 
I started my job at KQED, moved here from Los Angeles in April of 2016. And we had no idea what was about to happen. Yeah. Just like you, there was absolutely no way. And then suddenly we found ourselves in this place where we had to figure out how to handle this both sides-ism yeah. question. Like, how do you explain both sides of something that you know is not the truth? How do you let the person you know is not saying the truth have a voice in a piece when you're trying to be two-sided? You're trying yeah. to be balanced, fair and balanced. It's really hard. That's the irony of fair and balanced as a, <laughs> as a branding strategy. Yeah, you know, I mean, I write about this in the book. It's probably a sign of some deep character flaw that I'd rather not think about. But Roger Ailes always really liked me um, <laughs> and <laughs> helped me a lot when I was sort of coming up in politics. I can remember vividly having lunch with Roger uh, sometime in the 90s, and he was talking about doing Fox. And he said, you know, we're going to call it fair and balanced. And then he just kind of chuckled and gave that kind of evil Roger grin. So it, I, I think this is a huge issue that we're struggling with. And... We live in a world now in which the majority of what was one of the two great American political parties doesn't believe that the current president is legally elected. Right. And how do you wrap your mind around that? So the 24 election is not going to be between two parties that have, you know, center right, center left. It's going to be between one party uh, representing the president, still a traditional American political party, and a party that believes that we don't live in a democracy, that we live in an occupied country, and that they are about the business, they would say, of restoring democracy. Because, I mean, the way they look at it, obviously everybody knows Donald Trump won that election. This is why Donald Trump keeps going up in these polls when he gets indicted, because you have to get inside their mind. It's like crop circles. Once you understand it, it all makes sense. Of course Donald Trump won. We all know that. And they, they stole the election from him. And now... He's poised to get elected again, and they realize that the only way to stop him is to put him in jail. Hmm. So that's right. If we don't support Donald Trump, then we're supporting the deep state, and that is anti-democratic. So in their minds, the only way to save America is to reinstall the person that should be president today. Which is insane, but the majority of the party That's believes that. Think the majority of the party. Can we take this lens that you've built in this book and take a hard look at what's been going on in the House of Representatives for the last three yeah. years? It's funny to think of how we scheduled this. I was asked, hey, would you interview Stuart Stevens about this book? I get the book. I start reading it. This was, you know, These things take months. And all that has happened since, like I, I kept wondering, will we know who the speaker is right. by the time this happens? Well, you know, I think what's playing out, what played out, what's playing out with the speaker is essentially a reflection of the larger movements in the Republican Party. You know, there is no governing philosophy in the Republican Party. You know, if you held a gun to my head and said, describe to me what it means to be an American conservative today, I'd just say, shoot me. I had no idea. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She can articulate a theory of government. You can argue with her. You can love it. You can hate it. But you can have like a conversation. And she'll make a lot of sense. 
You can't have that conversation with anybody who would call themselves a conservative today. You know, there were once a series of what we would have called core values of the party that turned out to be marketing slogans. I mean, what were they? They were, uh, you know, character counts. I mean, think about that. Uh, personal responsibility, uh, strong on uh, Soviet Union, strong on Russia, deficit matters. Um, it, n- none of that. It's not just that the party's drifted away from that. It's completely against all those things. So when you go to pick a speaker, a leader of the party, when you don't have a party that believes in anything, no one can stand up and say, look, you may not like me. You may like me. doesn't matter. What's important is that we come together because we have big stuff to accomplish. We have to do, you know, bring down the Berlin Wall. We have to fight crime in America. We have to, you know, end welfare as we know. We have to, whatever the big causes are. And there are no, what are the big causes in the Republican Party? You know, investigate Hunter Biden's laptop? I mean, there's nothing there. So it becomes just this kind of uh, Lord of the Fly-ish rise of, of, of who is going to be dominant in this. And it has nothing to do with any greater good. The Republican Party really is, it operates now like a, a cartel. Why does it exist? It exists to defeat Democrats. That's not like a normal American political party. You know, that's like how OPEC operates. You know? No one asks OPEC, what is, your, what is the greater good? <laughs> we sell oil. No one asks like a narco cartel, like why do you really exist? You know, it's like we sell dope. Um, and that's what's happened to the party. And I think it's only going to continue and is only going to accelerate until there's an intervening force. So at one time, you might have thought, I might have thought, I might have hoped, did hope, that there would be something inside the Republican Party that a line would be crossed that they would say, this is, you know, too much. Like, the title of Cassidy Hutchinson's book, Enough. But there's not. I mean, think about it. Mitch McConnell went to bed January 5th, 2021. He was majority leader of the Senate. He wakes up on January 6th. He's minority leader, and he and his colleagues are running for their life in their own office. And yet they still won't vote to convict Donald Trump. So if you're not going to vote to convict a guy that organized a mob to come into your office to try to kill you, we think there's going to be some principle that they're going to cross, like, oh, that's too much. Hmm. And it's, it's a complete collapse of the party, and I really don't think that we've seen anything like it no. in, in American history. I was fascinated during the sort of, what, four hours of Tom Emmer's candidacy. Yes. He was the nominee for about four hours, and he seemed like the, for lack of a better term, statesman. He seemed like the person who had been in the... House of Representatives, the longest, had a sense of how to do things. There was a certain gravitas and formidability about him, and he voted to certify the elections, and he spoke yeah, out. I mean, so and, he, and he lasted four hours four as hours. the nominee, and then yeah. um, all it took was... I mean, think about it. So the person who's third line to the president doesn't believe the president's a legal president. What do you do with that? I mean, we're, we're, this has just never happened before. Maybe 1860, but not, it's really different. And I think it's, there are a lot of buffoonish characters over there. You know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, Lauren Bobart, Matt Gates. 
And I think that really serves their, to their benefit because then you look at it and you say, well, this is a buffoonish group of people. Well, they're not buffoonish. I mean, there's some very serious people there. And they're very confident and they're very patient. And they see democracy as having become the enemy of what they want the country to be because the country is changing so rapidly. Right. And 85% of Trump's coalition is white in a country that is 60% white and you know, less so since we've been talking. We're headed to minority-majority country. Yeah, that's... And in some ways, we already are. If you're 16 years and younger in America, the majority are non-white. So odds are really, really good they're going to be non-white at 18. And they realize this in the Republican Party. And the party had this, this choice to make. Either, and, and look, when I worked in the party, we failed at this. But at least we admitted it was a failure, which I think counts for something. You had to choose if you were going to do the hard work necessary to appeal to more non-white voters and those more at the lower economic spectrum. Or were you going to just try to maximize white vote? You know, there's some statistics here or numbers that are really fascinating to me. You know, 1956, Eisenhower gets 39% of the black vote. It drops to 7% with Goldwater, opposed to the Civil Rights Act. Um, now, you could have made a case at the time that, you know, for reasons of cultural conservatism, faith, entrepreneurship, patriotism, some large segment of the African-American community might come back to the Republican Party. But it didn't happen. Trump got 8% of the African-American vote. So that means you went up one point every 56 years. That's going to take a while. You know, what? when I worked in the Romney campaign, you could see in polling that there was a group of disaffected white voters low-frequency voters, they could have cared less about what we were talking about, you know, Russia or cutting taxes or smaller government. They could have cared less. But if you were do what Trump did, if you went out there and ran a racist campaign, a xenophobic campaign, if you called you know, for a Muslim ban, if you said Mexicans are rapists, that would get their attention. And they would vote. They'd turn out. Now, I would have bet... Of course, people have a much better sense of Mitt Romney now. You can imagine if you would ever gone into Mitt Romney's office and suggested this, he just would have thrown you out. And it was never even discussed in the Romney campaign. But I would have bet that whatever you gained at that lower end, you would lose with college-educated Republicans. And Trump was in 16, right up until the Comey letter. And then he got just enough of those college-educated Republicans. And the Lincoln Project, our mission was to get those five... Four to seven percent back, and Biden did in those key states just enough. Right, and that is what the Republican Party realizes, which is why they're trying to make it so much more difficult. They're trying to curate the vote, right? Because they know all the Stephen Millers in the world can't stop what is happening demographically in the country, and I, I think we're sort of in a race here. I think that if we can hold on to what we have for two more elections. I think we'll be out of this crisis. But I think it's going to be that long. Mm-hmm. And if we make it, we're going to make it because of younger voters, 100%. I think it's very difficult to find anyone in the country who voted Biden in 20, who has decided to vote for Trump in 24. They're out there, but there's not many of them. And... When you look at all the polls to show the race as close as it is, that is a very hopeful sign for Biden. 
Trump's base are older voters. Older voters die more. There's a lot of younger voters that are coming in. And there's always been this sort of truism in politics that, you know, that younger voters don't really vote much. But now they are. Biden's best group in 20 were under 30 voters, yeah. you know, the oldest president. So if we can just hold on, I think we'll be okay. But that's the challenge. You mentioned that there was a lot of hard work done to try to appeal to non-white voters. Why do you think it failed? Why do you think that the Republican yeah. Party couldn't? Yeah, that's a great, do? great question. Um, I mean, and were, do you feel like you were involved? Was there, sure. was there stuff you were trying and you'd like, we tried this, but it didn't work? We, what? Yeah. Um, ultimately, I think it's a failure of policy. The Republican Party was unable to come up with the policies that would appeal to more non-white voters and voters more at the lower economic spectrum. And there were efforts, you know, if you remember, things like empowerment zones. You know, this is a Jack Kemp sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you go back, you know, I worked in the Bush campaign in 2000, and the whole construct of compassionate conservatism was an admission that we had failed. And if you know, remember, Bush got a lot of criticism from conservatives. They said, well, when you call it compassionate conservatism, does that mean that you think conservatism as it is today isn't compassionate? And Bush's answer to that was pretty much, yeah, that's what I mean. And this is what Bush was attempting to do. So if you look at what is the first piece of legislation, or really the only major piece of legislation that Bush as president passed before 9-11, and it was no child left behind. And you can argue whether or not that was a success as a piece of legislation. But, you know, there's that famous picture that he's signing no child left behind with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder. Right. I mean, today that would be submitted like in a war crimes tribunal in the Republican Party. You know, <laughs> you put it like at the Hague, like we have right. proof. Right. But, you know, Bush came out of a tradition in Texas where the Democrats still were powerful forces in the legislature. His mentor was this longtime lieutenant governor, Bob Bullock, who's a Democrat. And that's how Bush thought you should govern. And then he became a wartime president. And there's a little parlor game among some of us that talk about what would have been like if Bush hadn't become a wartime president. And the answer is, you know, obviously we don't know. But I think that was really the failure of the party, uh, the last chance in a governing sense, to be able to try to put together a coalition that could establish what it meant to be a conservatism that appealed more. But it was a failure. Some really powerful writing in your book contrasting Ronald Reagan with Donald Trump. Now, the contrast is pretty obvious, but it is the optimism of Ronald Reagan's yeah. inauguration speech versus the absolute darkness of Donald Trump's. Yeah, I wrote about this more and it was all a lie, but... I think you can exist in two worlds if you're somebody like me. You can look at Ronald Reagan and feel that something was lost while acknowledging that a lot of what Ronald Reagan did, you really have to admit, was interjecting elements of race in our politics. But Ronald Reagan saw the world that to be born in America was to win life's lottery. And inequality, certainly in the country, but no one was disadvantaged in life for having been born in America. He announced in front of the Statue of Liberty his... Last speech was an ode to immigration. He signed a bill in 1986 that made everybody who was in the country before 1984 legal. 
you know, 1980 when he was running against Bush, there's this mind-boggling exchange. They have in a debate, which is still on YouTube, and you see hmm. where they're arguing over who is more liberal on immigration. I mean, Reagan, the, the, Reagan and Bush. Yeah, it'll blow your mind. That in a debate bad. in Texas, um, <laughs> and that it completely changed under Trump. Under Trump, to be born in America is to be a, a victim, and that there are these powerful forces in the world like Canada. They're taking advantage of us. And that he's going to settle the score. It completely changes your relationship with your sense of self and your sense of being an American and your sense of government and civic involvement. And Trump gave people permission to be their worst self. And, you know, that little spurt of road rage you all feel, somebody cuts us off in traffic, Trump would say, that's your best self. And you're a sucker if you let that person pass you. And... Once you embrace that, it's very easy. I mean, this idea that there was something about politics that was to be aspirational, that we were to collectively try to be something bigger and better than we were individually, that's completely lost with Trump. It is a grievance mentality, and it is basically a white grievance mentality. And, you know, we've had these hate movements in the country before, lots of them, Father Coughlin in the 30s or the Klan, whatever. The difference is it never was adopted by a major political party. And that is what's happened to the Republican Party. And literally, the platform of the Republican Party, as drafted in 2020, is whatever Donald Trump wants it to be. Which, I mean, you had to be involved in some of these platform fights to realize how insane that is. I mean, no one has written more compellingly yeah. about a platform committee meeting than Stuart Stevens. Maybe it didn't mean much. Maybe it was kind of like faculty fights over parking, but it meant a lot to the people that were in the fights. And now they just say, well, it doesn't matter. We'll be whatever Trump wants. You know, history would show us that once that happens, it's very difficult to unwind. If we're honest, we still don't know uh, how, how it will unwind. Yeah. But there is an exhaustion to Trumpism, because it is exhausting to be angry. It's exhausting to hate. And Trumpism is a hate movement. You know, if I ran the Democratic Party, I would wake up every day and I would try to get in a culture war, because Hmm. Republicans are losing these culture wars. You know, think about like Trump versus Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Who won that? Nike made $9 billion. Who won the Trump versus NASCAR banning the Confederate flag? NASCAR. So, you know, you're in a cultural war with NASCAR and the Republican. And I would say if I were in the Democratic Party, look, there's more of us than there are of, of them. We're right. They're wrong. We should walk with confidence. We should have some swagger. This is our country. And I think there's far too much, and I think there's a whole industrial journalism complex about this, trying to understand Trump voters. This whole phenomenon of writing about, you know, the Trump voters in a diner in Ohio. And to me, it is largely an exercise of how to avoid writing that this is racist. It's sort of like assigning the greatest reporters in America to figure out, like, why do men go to strip clubs, you know? Well... I think we know the answer. Um, <laughs> and there is this reluctance not to judge these people right. and this effort to try to understand them. And personally, you know, I, I don't want to understand the guy standing in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt in the Capitol. I don't care. I don't care how a person got there. I just want the person not to run the country and to be held accountable for when they broke the law. And 
all of these stories that are written to talk about, well, it's economic anxiety that drives Trumpism. It's just it's utter bullshit. The only group that Trump, the only economic group that Trump carried in 2020 were those who make 100000 a year or more. Mm. Look at the people who showed up at you know, January 7th to storm the Capitol. They were middle class. They're the people who took private jets there. You know, this, this, this wasn't the French Revolution. <laughs> these were a lot of military people. I mean, these were middle class people. And they weren't victims. And I think, you know, the thing that I go back to, why is it that the one group in America that really have every right to be called victims, who have been murdered, tortured, raped, laws passed to stop them from voting, which are African-Americans, why is it they never stormed the Capitol? Why is it that they just kept working in the system? Why is it that they believed in America and still believe in America more than these people who were given everything, right? And it is a complete break in what it means, I think, to be an American. And when you look at people like in the House of Representatives, every Republican just voted to put someone third in line to the president who voted against certification of an election where seven and a half million people. And ultimately, that's about race. Where are the areas that they say that there are illegal votes? Atlanta, Fulton County. Detroit, Philadelphia. What do they have in common? They have a lot of black people. Yes. And it is really just an extension of Jim Crow politics. So they weren't as good as they used to be stopping these people from voting. So now they're trying to stop them from being counted. And it is just straight up uh, racism. And it should be called as such. Um, And I think one of our failures is the way that we kind of dance around this um, and don't call it for what it is. Hmm. Let me uh, go to the audience here. Uh, Someone with us would like to know, why did you choose the word conspiracy in your title? The right uses that language too. Yeah, that's a great question. I thought about calling it the plot, but a plot sort of implies like there's people in a room somewhere that are plotting, (laughs) And it is like a plan. This isn't really a plan. This is really a, it is a conspiracy because they are aware that if the majority rules, the majority will not take America in this direction. And it is a conspiracy in the sense that there are people who are actively working toward this goal, working together in many cases, who don't want to admit what they are doing. And we call them election deniers, right? Even our language here is wrong. They're not election deniers. They're uh, people who engaged in a coup. That's not a denial of an election. That's a coup. (laughs) And I think the depth of this is very important to grasp. So if you just look at January 7th as an example, every element of the Republican Party was involved in that. From the White House to the Attorney General's Association, people supposed to uphold the law, to senators, to their staff, to major donors. It it was not a rogue operation. And we're seeing this now play out in the courtrooms as these lunatic lawyers or kooks around Trump have to plead guilty to this. But if you really want to capsule it, I can't stress how important enough it is 
go read or watch Donald Trump's announcement for president in March when he announced on the 30th anniversary of Branch Davidian siege. You know, I'd heard, I'd read clips of it and seen it. I never really paid attention. Go read it or go go watch it. It's on YouTube. It is extraordinary. It's a declaration of war against democracy. Straight up. No pretense about it. The final battle. This is our retribution. It opens not with the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, but with this nutty insurrectionist song that's sung by a bunch of people who are now in prison who tried to overthrow the government. I mean, that's as chilling a thing as you can do. And yet, seven out of the nine candidates for Republican nomination for president held up their hand and said that they would vote for Trump if he was convicted of trying to overthrow the United States government. So what do you do with that? I will say this. The only, the only two who didn't raise their hands are Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, both of whom were clients of mine. Ah. I have but, been given a question of which of the candidates do you like or semi-like, that the, or semi-like in parentheses. Yeah, well, I like Asa and I like Christie. I am deeply, deeply disappointed in Chris Christie. I mean, I love the guy. I worked in all his races. I sat in his living room when he was thinking about running for governor as U.S. attorney. He's impossible not to like. He's, but I would have bet anything that he would never have endorsed Donald Trump. Yeah. And I, it's even hard for me to talk about it. I, I, yeah, it sounds when, like it's when, been kind of hard for you to think about when, past yeah, clients. I mean, when I was standing in an airport and, and I saw him endorsing Trump, and I, I literally, like, tears came to my eyes. I could not, it was like watching someone overdose in front of you. And I just don't understand it. I mean, he even, you know, he tried to get him reelected. He was working his debate, but Trump tried to kill him, you know, with COVID. He waited until January 7th to try to kill Pence. (laughs) Tried to kill, and yet he's still like, you know. So what he's saying now is, I mean, I guess in life you have to meet people where they are, but, you know, you didn't need January 7th to know that Donald Trump shouldn't be president. And this is my problem with all these people who work for Trump and, they now, you know, say, well, you know, January 7th. And you keep saying I guess 7th. I think it's 6th. I guess that's good. But <laughs> this is a guy who, a rapist, a man who, who bragged about assaulting women, a guy who, you know, asked what the nuclear triad was, had no idea. You were for that person. And we know, you know, we don't talk enough about this. There is a very simple storyline here, plot line. The Russians decided they wanted to elect Donald Trump. They elected Donald Trump. Helped elect him. What did they get? Well, it turns out they got a lot. A whole lot. So the one most consistent element of American politics was the most antagonistic to the Soviet Union and Russia was the core conservative element of the Republican Party. Right. That is now the pro-Putin element of the Republican Party. Why? Think that that, why, yeah. Well, I think, or I know, a lot of these so-called conservatives, they're not conservatives, but they look at Russia... And what they see in Russia, and they like this. It's all run by white men. As Putin says, there's no gays in Russia. They're all Christians, Putin says. <laughs> you know, if you think Vladimir Putin's a Christian, and, and there's like, you know, millions and millions and millions of Muslims that live in Russia. But anyway, and elections are just sort of a formality. Hmm. They like that. You know, you listen to Ron DeSantis, tell me that's not what he wants. You know, you, you, you don't have a free press. You have a controlling of free enterprise from the top. So here you have Ron DeSantis. He gets in a fight with Disney. Disney. You get in the, you're a governor of Florida and you get in a fight with the happiness company. 
I mean, like, <laughs> imagine that. I mean, how, how do you do that? You know, one of the elements of autocrats that, you know, people like Ruth Ben Giat write a lot about in her brilliant book, Strong Men, they always tell you what they're going to do. You just have to listen. And Trump's doing that now. They've published their plans, what they intend to do. They want to abolish the civil service. They want to make the military political. You know, it's not bait and switch. And what I fundamentally do not understand is why so much of the business community continues to support the Republican Party. And, you know, there's a lot of people, and I write about this in the book, you know, a lot of companies who said, okay, we're not going to give money to people who voted not to certify the election. Well, some did, some didn't, but pretty much all of them then gave money to the Republican Congressional Committee, which then gives money to those people, or the Republican Senatorial Committee. So it's just sort of like a laundering, a pass-through. So you're CEO of a company in America. You'd rather be a CEO in Russia? Really? Is that what you want? I mean, you want somebody like Trump who, you know, tries to shut down Comcast because he doesn't like the coverage of CNN? Really? Or NBC? That's what you want? There is this weird phenomenon in America of people who have succeeded in a way they only could have succeeded in America. Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, uh, the Koch brothers were like this. And they are dedicated to changing the system. The only system which would enable them to amass great wealth and power. And that is the weirdest sort of contradictory that instead of protecting this system, they want to change it. One of the things that you break out in the book is how we, we will look at Russia as America and point out the power of the oligarchs when in reality we're not looking at ourselves in that way. We're not yeah. really, really confronting the fact that the oligarchs... Yeah, I can make a good case, I'd argue this in the Oxford Union, that oligarchs are more powerful in America than in Soviet Union, than in Russia. I mean, who decided to go to war against Ukraine? One man, right? It wasn't the oligarchs. We have American oligarchs. We just don't call them that. I don't know why we don't, but we don't. So, you know, you take someone like Peter Thiel. He thinks the Republican Party is far too moderate. So he funds candidates like J.D. Vance, this guy Masters who lost in Arizona, but narrowly. It's tremendous power. You can make a good case that without Zuckerberg and the policy decisions that Facebook made under the direction or advice of Peter Thiel, who was in on the board in 2016, Donald Trump certainly wouldn't have been elected president. Had Facebook not placed employees inside the Trump campaign, they helped them use Facebook, which, to their credit, they offered to do the same to the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign turned it down. But they have immense power. And there isn't a figure like Putin that can step in and say, no, don't do this. I think as oligarchs go, they got a better deal in America than they do. And they don't have to worry about what window to walk by. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. This question is about the Lincoln Project. And before I ask it on behalf of the audience member, for people who don't know exactly what the Lincoln Project is up to, can you just tell yeah, us? Yeah, so let's, let's, I can say this about the Lincoln Project because I wasn't involved in the founding, so it's not false modesty, right? right. The Lincoln Project was founded in fall of 2019 by a little group of Republican consultants who were against Donald Trump. And I can remember when this started, because they called me and said, like, do you want to be part of this? And I was working then for former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who was primarying Donald Trump. 
Right. Bill Weld had been one of my first clients. I loved the guy. I kept saying, why didn't somebody primary Trump? And Weld decided to primary Trump. And it was like, well, you know, call my bluff. I got to go work for the guy. So I wasn't involved in the Lincoln Project when it began. I later went to work with it. So the goal of the Lincoln Project was really to speak to this group of soft Republicans, some soft Democrats, um, who had voted for Trump and to try to get them to vote for Biden. I think what is most interesting about the Lincoln Project, and I can say this having absolutely nothing to do with it, there was a theory in 2020, sort of January 2020, that Democrats should not make the race about Trump. And it was not a crazy theory. Elizabeth Warren had this. She articulated very well, as she does. Look, nothing you say about Donald Trump is going to change anybody's opinion about Donald Trump. Everybody in America has an opinion. You've got to make this about issues, as they did in 18, when they really made it about, you know, a lot about health care and a lot about. So we shouldn't have a race about Donald Trump. The Lincoln Project, these guys, came in and said, that's wrong. Donald Trump is the first issue, the second issue, the first hundred issues. And they said this at the time when Biden was busy losing primaries. And then Biden extraordinarily won. And Biden's message was really very sort of a rephrasing of what the Lincoln Project was saying. You know, when he said the soul of America, that's what he meant. This is a referendum on Trump. Mm-hmm. And there was sort of a, a, a synchronicity of that. I think inside the Lincoln Project, we thought it was possible that the party would react the way it did. We collectively wrote an op-ed and we placed it in the Washington Post in October, a sort of open letter to our former Republicans saying there is going to come a moment here when Donald Trump loses, when you're going to be asked to make a choice and you have to stand for America. And damn if they didn't, they went the other way. And we wrote that open letter. I think we still had hoped that we could talk to these people and appeal to them. They were us, right? But they went the other way. And now the Lincoln Project is about the business of, as long as Biden is the nominee, helping Biden win re-election. You know, I spent 30 years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, right? I, I can say, without any question, there's only one pro-democracy party in America, and that's the Democratic Party. And, you know, there's a guy who's now involved in the Lincoln Project, a sort of legendary Democratic consultant, Joe Trippi. He ran the Dean campaign. Sure. In many ways, he invented modern politics. So when I was doing campaigns, I used to hate to go against Joe. The guy was really good at Joe would be crazy. <laughs> and when Joe and I look back at what we used to fight about in races, it was stuff like, well, should the capital gain tax be 35% or 28%? We're like, really? Really? That's what we fought over? And not like whether or not someone who wins by 7.5 million votes is president. So that is what we're about. The advantage the Lincoln Project has, I realized this very early on working for them, how incredibly liberating it was not to have a client. You know, if you work in a campaign and you make an ad calling your opponent a liar, when your candidate gets asked, well, you got an ad running, you're calling your opponent a liar, do you think he's really or she's really a liar? Your candidate better say yes, right? Inside the Lincoln Project, we didn't have a client. So we could put a billboard of Jared and Ivanka up in Trump in, in, in Times Square. Nobody went to Joe Biden and said, how did you let this happen? Right. And it gave us, it gives us a tremendous freedom to do what we know to be the most effective. You know, if you work for the Democratic Party, you know, there's certain things almost kind of like a mandatories in the Olympics. You've got to support this. We don't have to do any of that. We can just do what we know to be the most effective to speak to these voters and to stop them from going back to Trump. 
and this is the whole danger of no labels, which is a different conversation, but these voters, if they have another alternative that they feel is an, a certain percentage of them may go back to that. So that's okay. what we do every day in the Lincoln Project. Okay. I have to lay this on you. This is a great question from the audience. The Lincoln Project is my guilty pleasure, but how do we know that you and the other Lincoln Projectors won't turn on the Democrats if there is ever a normal Republican running again? So I, I, I've gotten this question. <laughs> oh, you've and, been asked. This is yeah, not the yeah, first time I, you've been I, asked this. My, right. You know, my answer to this is, so let me get this straight. <laughs> More Americans voted for Joe Biden than any president in history, right? They control the Senate. They control more governorships. They control the White House. And we're really worried that like five or six guys is going to change that. We don't have any power. Nobody cares in the Democratic Party what we say. My experience, uh, my interaction now with the Republican Party is getting death threats from the Republican Party. Mm. There's no normal Republican Party to go back to. There's not. I mean, so you look at somebody like Glenn Youngkin, right, governor of Virginia, right? He's the kind of guy that at one time in my life I would have thought would be a great client. You know, I mean, he's got a lot of money, you know, smart guy, seems sane. But what happened to Glenn Youngkin? Well, first he ran on a very racist campaign about crazy, the whole idea of critical race theory, which doesn't exist in Virginia. You know, he was out there ranting against teaching Margaret Walker in schools when he sends his kids to Georgetown Prep, which has seminars on Margaret Walker, as they should. You know, he doesn't believe any of this bullshit, but he says it. So what happens to him? He's a good Republican, right? You know, he ends up campaigning for Carrie Lake in Arizona. Nuts as a bunny, Carrie Lake. Glenn Youngkin didn't change Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake changed Glenn Youngkin. Hmm. Hmm. And you're seeing this play out now in the primary. You saw it play out in the speaker's race. Is your perfect example. How long can you last as someone who will say that Joe Biden is a legally elected president? About four hours. That was the max. That's all he did. You know? Think about that. And this is where I have such incredible anger toward all these people that I help elect. They inherited the legacy of the greatest generation. People like my dad. You know, fought three years in the South Pacific to save democracy. And, you know, like hundreds of thousands of others came home, never talked about it. So what did they have to do at this moment of crisis? All they had to do was get their comm shop to put out a statement congratulating the president-elect of the United States. You know, I mean, as challenges go, that's pretty easy. And they couldn't do it. <sighs> and they failed. And I think it's going to be studied for a long time. But I will never again, wonder how 1930s Germany happened. Because this is the exact playing out. You know, there's people who say, you know, it's sort of trope, you can't talk about 1930s Germany or World War II because it reduces anything you're saying to absurdity. I take a very different view. I think we have to talk about it because I think the parallels are extraordinarily alike. And you're not going to end the same result. You know, when I was working, it was all a lie. You know, one of the most important books I read, to me, important, was a memoirs of a Prussian aristocrat politician named Franz von Papen. And Franz von Papen did more to usher Adolf Hitler into power than really anyone else in the 30s. So in 1953, he writes his memoirs. Now, you could say 1953, things had gone a little sideways, right? 100 million people dead, World War, the Holocaust. He's still trying to justify it. And his logic goes, look, those of us in the ruling class, we had lost touch with the working class, which was true. 
and the working class in Germany was becoming communist. They were becoming Bolsheviks, which is true. So we needed someone that could connect with the working class so that we could remain in power and that we could be the alternative to communism. And that was Adolf Hitler. And if you listen, there are statements that he made that are almost verbatim statements that Mitch McConnell made in 2016 before Trump was elected. We're going to change Trump. He will change to us. We are mainstream conservatives. It's the same exact pattern. And yet here, even today, Mitch McConnell's afraid to say Donald Trump's name. And he had a chance to vote to convict him, and he didn't, and then gave out a speech saying why he should have voted to convict him. I think it is a tremendous betrayal of what they inherited, that they should be held accountable, and I think that's how history will see it. I got this interesting question that is essentially what happens after Trump. Will Trumpism continue to grow in the Republican Party even after Trump loses the election, his mind, his money, his property, and maybe his freedom? Yes, I think the answer is yes. I think that, you know, if you look at these movements, they need someone to start them, but they don't need someone to continue them. The core of what has been unleashed in Trumpism is, you know, as we talked about, it's a deep grievance. It's a deep racial animosity. And it's, it's a deep fear. And fear is the driving emotion of autocracies, just as hope is the driving emotion of democracy. America is changing, right? I mean, we are going to become a minority-majority country. And that is what they're afraid of. It is a fear of the future. One of my favorite clients years ago uh, used to say, be for the future because it's going to happen anyway. They've lost that lesson. It's only going to accelerate. So look at Ron DeSantis, right? So a lot of donors a year ago poured millions and millions of dollars into Ron DeSantis's campaign because they saw Ron DeSantis as a big state governor in the model of Reagan, Bush, even Romney who won that. Except Ron DeSantis isn't like those people. Ron DeSantis is an angry little man. He is trying to ban history books. He's trying to ban uh, and and punish uh, anyone who acknowledges that they may be gay in a school or a student may be gay. Now, DeSantis is losing, but he's not losing because of those reasons. He's losing because he's a creepy guy. And he barely won in 2000. When did he win? 2014, I guess. He lost, you know, won by 10,000 votes. And then he won again, right? One big. That's the party. They're, they're going to become more extreme, not less, until they lose. That is, pain is the only teacher in politics. And the only way to change this is that Republicans have to lose again and again until they realize they can't win unless they change. And then there is a need for a center-right same party in America Mm -hmm. that can articulate a theory of government. And hopefully that will emerge. Well, let me ask you this last question. We're coming down. And this person in the audience, thank you for your great work. Mm -hmm. What is the best way to get Republicans to vote with Democrats in the 2024 election? Since you just said, yeah, 
And I'm yeah. it's again, a great question, asking this question on that, behalf of an audience member. Yeah, this is basically, you know, what we spend our days talking about and thinking about and trying to figure out in the Lincoln Project. What we found is the most powerful message is to ask voters, is this who you really are? You put like Marjorie Taylor Greene up there. You say, like, is this really who you want to be? And when Trump ran, he went through this, he's still doing it, this whole idea of trying to make people in the suburbs afraid that other people who are non-white may move into the suburbs. And I think that's a complete misreading of where America is. All the people I think we know, if if someone, they lived in a a neighborhood and someone non-white or different religion moved in next door, they would do everything they can to show their kids that they welcome those people. They don't want to be that person that hates. Is this who you are? Is this who you want your children to be? Is this how you feel? Are you this angry? And I think people back away. I know they do. Hmm. And it transcends ideology. And, you know, a lot of people in the 2022 race that said, you know, this race has to be about gas prices. You can't make it about democracies. I, I never felt that. And I think in the White House, they realized it and they put democracy on the ballot. And the one thing that I know about politics is that if you're in a campaign and you want voters to care about something, you have to care about it. You have to say, this is what the race is about. The race that you worked in with Harris Walford, (laughs) when Harris Walford ran in Pennsylvania to replace John Hines, who had tragically died in the race, 1991. That race, they made it about health care and health care wasn't in the top 10 issues in Pennsylvania. But they went for it and said, this is what it's going to be. I use that as an example over and over again. There wasn't a poll in 2007 that said, overwhelmingly, Americans want a race about hope and change. But Obama made it about that. And that's what you have to do. You have to make the race about something that people care deeply about, that transcends their some of their ideology. And you see this successfully when you look at votes that are about abortion. You see red states like Kansas opposing these. And why? If you look at the messaging that was done in that campaign, and I had nothing to do with it, so I can praise it to this guy, it was about loss of freedom. It was about someone telling you what to do. It was not about the issue per se of, of abortion. And that's how you have to make this. You have to make it about something that you believe in that to vote a different way is to abandon that belief. And the Republican Party is cursed or blessed, depending on it, by a group of people who are extraordinarily unlikable. You know, who really there makes you, you, you want to like them. Jim Jordan, Margie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates. These are weird people. These are people like you, I really don't want to sit next to this person on a plane. And, you know, if you look at these people around Trump, I mean, for those of us who worked in campaigns, it wasn't like Steve Bannon and and Gorka and Miller and Jason Miller, who, God help me, was my intern, uh, Kellyanne Conway. It wasn't like these people woke up in 2016 and suddenly wanted to get involved in presidential politics. They always wanted to be involved. We would just never let them in. Hmm. You know, I mean, I have like a 
voicemail messages from Steve Bannon in 2000, like begging in 2004 to be part of the Bush campaign. Hmm. I was like, Steve Bannon? Really? (laughs) Corey Lewandowski? And Trump took these people who were basically horrible people, elevated them and put them in power. And his management style is like a mob boss. He takes people who knows that they shouldn't be at this level and they owe everything they have to him. And it becomes a way that they control him. I mean, if you look at Michael Cohen, Michael Cohen admits this now. You know, I mean, God loved the guy for... But if you knew Michael in the old days, believe me. (laughs) So that sense of decency is something that really can appeal to people. And there is a fundamental privilege of being involved in a civil society. And that is not to wake up in the morning worried about what sort of mood the president's in. You shouldn't have to think about government. You ought to be able to live your damn life. Hmm. You know, that's what I thought conservatism was about. And that is what is denied, what this autocratic movement is, it is denied that to you. They can't govern themselves. They can't pick a leader. There's nothing to unite them. And it is a way that they always want to be part of your life. You have to bet that the majority of Americans find that very intrusive and don't want that. Yeah. The last thing I'll say, I mean, we are in a period of fundamental question. Are we going to continue to have minority, majority rule? There's electoral college, and Biden has to win the popular vote by four points probably to win the electoral college. If you look at the Supreme Court, in the history of America, there's five justices that have been confirmed by senators who represented a minority of the country. All five are on the court right now. So part of it is a demographic trend. Larger states get larger compared to smaller states, but you still have two senators. So you have this imbalance now. There's like 50, 60 more million people voted for Democratic senators than Republican. These are troubling flaws in our system. And... We don't have an easy remedy to that. Yeah. Stuart Stevens, thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Stuart Stevens, this is the book, The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. Please pick up a coffee here or at your local bookstore. And if you would like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit the website, www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Brian Watt. You can hear me on KQED in the mornings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.